Now remain standing for our gospel lesson from John chapter 4. Listen carefully to the gospel of God. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria asked to him, said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from me? A Samaritan woman. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for giving us your word. We thank you that you are not a silent God, but a God who communicates to us, who reveals yourself to us through your son and through the words of scripture. Help us to understand it, to believe it and to do it this day in Jesus name. Amen. Please be seated. When I'm preparing sermons, I always spend a good amount of time figuring out what not to say, because there's more to say than time allows. But every once in a while, I indulge myself and just decide to break it up into two sermons so I can say more of what I'd like to say. And that's what we're going to do this week and next week. Today's sermon is actually just going to be on point one. And the first six verses of the passage that I read 
And it's in many ways going to be an introduction to John 4. John 4 is a pivotal passage in, in some ways. It's important in John's gospel in setting up or continuing themes that have already been set up. Uh, so we're going to spend a few weeks in John 4. It'll probably end up being, I was thinking 4, probably end up being 5 weeks just in John 4. And then we'll try to pick the pace back up and moving forward. Because I don't want to spend several years in John, maybe just one or two years in John. Now, before we dive into John chapter 4, I want to remind you of the key passage in the book of John. If you're going to navigate John's gospel, you need to know where the lodestar is. You, you kids know what a lodestar is? A lodestar is a star in the sky that it's that's used to guide ships at sea. It's a star that sailors use to keep on course when they're out in the ocean. The main load star that sailors use is the North Star, which is also called Pole Star, Polaris. The book of John has a load star. It has a star that will keep us on track as we navigate through this gospel. And it's in the first chapter. Do you remember what it is? It's actually two verses. John chapter 1 verses 14 and 16. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the father. Full of grace and truth. Verse 16. And of his fullness... We have all received grace upon grace. We've received grace and then more grace. The grace continues. That's really what the book of John is about. Every passage, in a sense, is fleshing out that truth, those realities in John 1, 14 and 16. Those, are the, those verses are the lodestar of John's gospel. Everything Jesus does and says is full of grace and truth. Can't find anything in John's gospel where Jesus is doing something that's not full of grace and full of truth. Everything he does, he does as the God man, the God who became flesh. The God who became human. He says everything and does everything as a relational being a real person who is fully God, fully human, full of grace, full of truth. Those are the realities in John 1, 14 and 16 that get fleshed out in the rest of the gospel. And it's what we see going on once again in John chapter 4. The four points I'm going to draw your attention to today and next week, Lord willing, are first, Jesus is purposeful. Second, Jesus is human. Third, Jesus is personal. A relational. Fourth, Jesus is superior or above all. Use John's language earlier. These four points correspond to A, B, C, and D in your outline. He's purposeful, human, 
personal and superior. The first point is that Jesus is purposeful. And this is this is where we're going to camp out today. This is going to be sort of a, a mixture between an expository sermon on these verses and a topical sermon. Everything Jesus does is intentional. Everything Jesus has ever said or ever done or ever orchestrated in world history or in your life in particular is part of a master plan that was formed in eternity before the very first day of creation. And it's a plan that takes into consideration everything. Jesus is always thinking about everything. Just stop and think about that. He's always God is always thinking about everything. He's always, therefore, he's always working all things according to the counsel of his will. He can do that because he's God, he's infinite, and he can think about everything all the time. He's always working all things together for good to those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. That's Romans 8.28. Ephesians 1.11, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. And Jesus is not just purposeful, he's graciously purposeful. His actions are full of grace and truth all the time toward those who believe in him, toward those who love him, toward those who are called according to his gracious purpose. Your circumstances are a part of God's master plan and they're a part of your training program as his child. It's grace upon grace all the time, even when it feels like it's just simply hardship upon hardship, struggle upon struggle. What I want you to see over the next few weeks as we walk through the first half of John 4 in particular is this. All of Christ's actions and decisions and words work together for the good of this Samaritan woman. We don't get to see her become a believer today. But it will we'll get to see it in a couple weeks when we look at verses 16 to 26. But already at the beginning of John 4, we see Jesus acting purposefully in a way that is for this Samaritan woman's good. Ultimately, it's for her salvation. But you see, Jesus didn't begin acting purposefully toward this woman at the beginning of John 4. That's not when it began. No, Jesus was thinking about this woman before time began. He began acting purposefully toward her long before the story in John 4 happened. Jesus ordered history from the beginning so that he would meet this woman at this well, in this town, on this day, at this time. Everything that had happened in the universe leading up to John 4 was worked out by God in accordance with his perfect and very detailed will. And it was God's will for this woman to meet Jesus and to be saved. This is how we need to see God's 
providence in history and in our lives, in your life in particular. Let me read verses 1 to 6, and we'll see that Jesus purposefully left Judea. He purposefully did not baptize, and he purposefully went to the well in Sychar of Samaria. And we'll see that in each case, there is an underlying graciousness in his purposefulness. His purposefulness is full of grace and truth. Verse 1, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, so Jesus himself did not baptize his, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. Verse 4, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Verses 1 and 3 indicate that Jesus left Judea with a purpose. He left because he knew that the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and discipling um, uh, discipling more people than John was. So he left. Something about this knowledge that the Pharisees had caused him to leave. Now, we can rule out that Jesus left because he was afraid. He didn't leave out of fear. Jesus never does anything in fear. He never leaves in, out of fear. But he often leaves because his hour is not yet has not yet come, his hour of death and glorification. He often leaves because it's not time for him to go to the cross and die. It was not time for him to be glorified by his father in death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. Jesus was in charge of when he died, completely in charge of when he died, to the very second, not the Pharisees. Remember what Jesus says in John 7, John 10, verses 17 and 18. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. This explains those mysterious scenes, passages where the Jews are wanting to to apprehend Jesus, kill Jesus, but they can't because it's not time for him to die. For example, John seven thirty says, Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. That's the explanation for why they couldn't figure out how to, how to lay hold of him. The explanation is his hour hadn't come. Leaves some mystery there on how, well, yeah, but how did it, how did it work out in the details? Well, we don't know. It, Usually we're not given that. John 8 verse 30 says the same thing. And, and the idea here is that Jesus is in control. Jesus is sovereign over when he dies. Not anyone else. The Pharisees were not in charge of Jesus. Jesus was. He would decide when it was time for him to suffer at the hands of these Jewish leaders and die. Another reason Jesus left, and this is more explicit in the text this morning, John 4, is that the Pharisees were using the popularity of Jesus to discredit 
the ministry of John the Baptist. We saw this going on back in chapter 3 as well. In John 3, you can look up John 3, verses 25 and 26. It appears that the Jews are planting seeds of doubt in the minds of John's disciples about his baptism. And, and they have this discussion about purification that leads John's disciples to ask, ask John, what's going on? Why is everyone going to Jesus to, to be purified in his baptism and not ours? Was John's baptism not good enough? Why is everyone leaving John and going to Jesus? And this raised doubts in their minds, in the minds of John's disciples. But it, it also seemed to open a door for the Pharisees to criticize John and then to pit John against Jesus. In John 4, verses 1 and 3, it appears that this, this reality appears to be a big part of why Jesus leaves Judea. He didn't want to give the Pharisees a reason to conclude or to argue that John was just a, a passing religious fad. The Pharisees had discredited John. They would indirectly be discrediting Jesus himself. See, John was the forerunner of Jesus. John prepared the way for Jesus. John actually baptized Jesus. John pointed people to Jesus in his preaching, in his ministry. John preached the same gospel that Jesus was preaching. So Jesus was not interested in giving the Pharisees ammunition against John and his prophetic ministry. But the text points us to another reason that Jesus left Judea and went to Galilee through Samaria. He had another purpose in mind. It appears from verse 4 that it was necessary for Jesus to go to Samaria. Look at verse 4. It says Jesus needed to go through Samaria. This need probably refers primarily, we're just looking at the literal historical text here and what it's saying, it primarily refers to a geographical need. It's true that the most direct and most convenient way to get from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north was through Samaria, which was right between the direct route was through Samaria. But strictly speaking, it wasn't the only way. Jesus could have gone around Samaria. In fact, many Jews did go around Samaria so they wouldn't have to go through unclean, impure Samaria. See, Samaria was filled with what the Jews just considered a bunch of half-breeds. To give you the history of Samaria, it goes all the way back 750 years before Christ when the Assyrians invaded Israel and they took all of the Israelites out of Israel and they scattered them all, all over the, the world. But they did leave some back. They left a few Israelites back. But then they also brought people from all over the world and moved them to 
Israel. And so you had Israelites and Gentiles from all over the world intermarrying and creating half-breeds. And so the Jews despised the Samaritans. They weren't real Jews. Their bloodline had been corrupted with Gentile nations coming in. And so people would go around Samaria. But Jesus went through Samaria the most direct way from Judea up to Galilee. In any event, the need here in verse 4, we need to see John's theological message behind this word need. It goes beyond geography. Remember, Jesus does everything purposefully. He works every detail in the universe in accordance with his perfect will. He works everything out for the good of those who have been called according to his purpose. Before time began, you see, God had planned to save this woman at this well in Sychar of Samaria. So the, G- so the meeting between Jesus and this Samaritan woman was a divine appointment. In that sense, it needed to happen. It must happen. It would happen. Whatever else might be going on here, Jesus felt a divine impulse to leave Judea and go to Galilee by way of Samaria because he had an appointment to keep. An appointment that he had made before he created the world. He needed to leave Judea and go to Galilee through Samaria. He needed to keep this appointment. And this this perspective, this theological perspective on what's going on here is confirmed when we see how much Jesus knows about this woman, how well he knows her. He knows her whole life. He knows all of her sins. He knows about all of her marriages that she was maybe trying to to keep from him. She knows about all the other wells that she's been trying to drink from her whole life. He knows that they've just left her thirsty. He knows about her previous marriages and her current fornication with a man who's not even her husband. And the text gives us no reason to think that Jesus somehow learned about this upon arrival or when he met her from other people that came to tell him or from a prior conversation with her that's not recorded or anything like that. Jesus knew her before he met her, before she met him. He knew her from eternity. And he loved her from eternity. He knew everything about her. And because he loved her, he kept his appointment with her. He is the sovereign God who ordained this moment for her good. See, Jesus is not being jerked around by geography. He's not being jerked around by the Pharisees. The passage is presenting him as the sovereign God who saves. He's not being controlled by his circumstances. No, Jesus is in charge of all the circumstances that we see here. Verse 35, up in chapter 3, you can look again, verse 35, says that the Father had given 
all things into the hand of his son, into the hand of Christ. Jesus has the whole world, the whole universe in his hand. He has every everything is at his disposal. He is orchestrating all events, including his upcoming suffering and death on the cross. Jesus is purposeful. And in chapter four, he's not reacting. He's not letting the circumstances come to him and then reacting. He's moving with a purpose. He's moving with a purpose. Jamie will like that phrase. And we need to make sure we see the graciousness of his purposefulness. Jesus is not just purposeful in your life. He's graciously purposeful in your life. I want to say that again because that's a main point, a main takeaway. Jesus is not just purposeful in your life. He's graciously purposeful in your life. The reason you need to know that and think about that and remember that and hear it again and again is because the circumstances in your life will not give you that message. You may be able to figure out, well, everything's purposeful, but it doesn't always seem graciously purposeful, but it always is. He is full of grace and truth. And of his fullness, you have received and you continue to receive grace upon grace. All of Christ's purposes are gracious toward his people. You see, it was gracious. Of Jesus to leave Judea. And keep his appointment at the cross. It was gracious that he did not go to the cross earlier than he had planned. Or later than he had planned. He graciously went to the cross at the right hour. The hour that he had ordained before time began. Before hours began. It was gracious that he left Judea when he did. So that the Pharisees could not compare his ministry With John's ministry in order to undermine one or both. It was gracious of Jesus to leave so that John's ministry was not unnecessarily discredited by the Pharisees. John was already making himself less and Jesus more. He wanted to leave that to John, not the Pharisees. It was gracious of Jesus to guard the unity between his movement and John's. And it was gracious of Jesus to keep his divine appointment with this Samaritan woman at the well in Sychar. We have a sovereign savior. You have a sovereign savior who is multi-purposeful, multi-purposed. And his purposes are always gracious to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purposes. And, and they're always working in your favor, even before you know it. They were working in your favor before you got to the place where you loved him and knew that you were called according to his purpose. He loved you before you loved him. This, the story of the Samaritan woman shows that beautifully. In every word and action of the Son of God, there are trillions of divine purposes all working together 
to accomplish the perfect will of God. God is never just doing one thing. He's always doing countless things that we cannot see or understand. And that's that's true just in your life, in each of your lives. That's true. That statement is true. It's true of the circumstances that surround you right now. He never just has one purpose for you in mind. He's got innumerable purposes in mind, even when you can only see one or two or three of them. And even when you cannot see any of them, sometimes you can't see any of them. You will someday, but you can't now. God is infinitely wise. He knows the beginning from the end. He sees the ripple effect of every molecule of every molecule that he's ever created. He sees the ripple effect of the movement of every molecule in every direction forever. And he sees all of this all the time. There's nothing that God is not always thinking about. Everything God does relates to everything else God does. And not one thing falls outside of his eternal purposes. And here's the promise from Scripture. If you love him, if you are called according to his purpose, then every one of his actions in the universe, all of his infinite purpose in creation, Everything that happens in the world works for your good. I know it doesn't always seem true, but it is. Someday you'll be able to see this truth with your eyes. But for now, you have to accept it by faith. You don't get to see it now. That's just part of what it means to be a Christian. It's part of what it means to walk by faith, not by sight. The next subpoint in the outline is that Jesus purposefully did not baptize. John 3 says twice that Jesus baptized. John 4, 1 says it a third time. So we're getting the impression that Jesus is baptizing. But then John 4, 2 clarifies that Jesus himself was not baptizing. It, it was actually his disciples who were baptizing in his name. Almost certainly, in my opinion, Jesus baptized initially he he at least baptized the initial disciples that came to him i don't think this verse is saying that he never baptized anyone necessarily verse 2 indicates that at some point probably early on he stopped baptizing he was not baptizing he was letting his disciples do the baptizing his motivation for doing this was probably similar to Paul's in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1.14, Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. And, and then it's interesting because Paul remembers, after he wrote that, he remembers in the next verse, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides that, I do not know whether I baptized any other And here's why he's glad, the very next verse, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And he goes on to say that that gospel is the cross 
of Christ Jesus. Paul purposefully, because he was something of a celebrity for some people, he purposefully did not baptize. Not because he thought baptism was unimportant. Just go read all the things he has to say about baptism and you'll know he thought it was very significant and that God was doing something in baptism. But because he did not want to be baptism by him to become a distraction to his preaching of the cross. And in this, Paul was imitating his Savior, his Master. Jesus purposefully did not continue baptizing people, not because he thought baptism was unimportant, but because probably he didn't want people thinking that you had to be baptized by Jesus himself for it to count. Or if you were baptized by Jesus himself, you got something extra special. In his commentary on this verse, Pastor John Calvin wrote these helpful pastoral words. He says, the value of baptism does not come from the minister, but its whole force depends on its author, Jesus, in whose name and by whose command baptism is administered. He goes on to say, we receive a special strengthening when we know that our baptism has no less effectiveness to cleanse us and renew us than if it had been given directly by the Son of God. So what he's saying here is that whether the Son of God baptized you directly with his own hand, personally, or he did it through another person, it doesn't matter. You receive the same grace, the same effectiveness, the same to use Calvin's word, cleansing and renewing power. When you, when you get baptized, when you got baptized, it was Jesus baptizing you. It was Jesus clothing you with himself, even if you were baptized by a mere man like me or someone else. The cleansing power of your baptism is rooted in Jesus, not in the minister who baptized you. Subpoint three. Jesus purposefully went to the well in Sychar of Samaria. He went there to meet a woman and to save her, as he had planned to do from before the foundation of the world. I already talked about this, but there's one more point that I want us to think about on this. It's significant that Jesus meets this woman at a well. In the Old Testament, there are three highly important stories where a man meets a woman at a well, and that woman then becomes an important bride. In Genesis 24, Abraham's servant meets a woman at a well, and it's Isaac's future wife, Rebekah. In Genesis 29, Jacob meets a woman at a well, and it's his future wife, Rachel. 
In Exodus 2, Moses meets a woman at a well, and it's his future wife, Zipporah. These stories are really, really important background to this story in John 4. We can't even begin to plumb the depths of the the significance of that connection. But we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit. We've seen from earlier passages and from previous sermons that John is presenting Jesus as the bridegroom who has come to earth to become a man to claim his bride. The bridegroom has come to pursue his woman to save her, to marry her, to purchase her with his own blood. You remember what John the Baptist says about Jesus in the previous chapter up in John 3 again. Remember these chapter breaks are not inspired, so we don't just ignore that four between chapters 3 and 4. In John 3.29, John says to Jesus, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. It's not the first time we see the, the bride-bridegroom analogy And it's not the last time we'll see it in John. Jesus is the husband in John's gospel. And the woman at the well is one of the representatives of his whole bride. She is a member of his bride, but she's also a symbol of his bride in this story. The bride that Jesus came to rescue and marry is an adulteress fornicating woman. The church is made up of people like you and me who would be no different from this Samaritan woman apart from the mighty grace of God. Apart from His grace and truth that just keeps piling up in our lives. She had been married five times already. She was fornicating with her current man And she didn't even recognize God when he introduced himself to her and had a conversation with her. But like a good bridegroom, he kept pursuing her. He met her at a well at the sixth hour. And he told her how to have eternal life. He told her, How to become a part of the bride. He told her how to make him the sixth husband. The true bridegroom. And later he would bear a cross for her at the sixth hour. And on the sixth day of the week. Some of you may remember the significance of the number six. In John's gospel from the sermon on the wedding at Cana back in John 2. The wedding at Cana took place on the sixth day of Jesus' ministry. And there were six jars of water that Jesus turned into wine. And in that story, Jesus showed himself to be the true bridegroom, the true husband, the true man, the true Adam, who was created on the sixth day. The first Adam was created on the sixth day of creation. And Adam died spiritually on the sixth day of creation. If you look carefully at the chronology in Genesis 1 to 3, you'll find that Adam sinned. He died spiritually 
on in the cool of the day, and it was the cool of the sixth day, the day on which he was created. In other words, he died on the evening of the sixth day, the first sixth day, the first Friday. The church fathers called this Bad Friday, the day that sin entered the world. But the second Adam, or the last Adam, he didn't die spiritually on the sixth day of the week. He died physically on the sixth day, and his death gave spiritual life to his bride. We call this Good Friday because it was the day that our sins and the sin of Adam were paid for, were taken care of, dealt with decisively. Good Friday was the day that the bridegroom laid down his life for the bride. He saved his woman by giving himself up for her. There's an application for us men here. Men, are you pursuing your woman? Is, is the way you treat your wife an example of the gospel? Is it reflecting the way Christ treats his bride, beginning with dying for her? Are you making appointments with your woman? Are you dying for her? Are you giving yourself self up for her? It's important that you do that, not just, not just because it's what God calls you to do and it's the way of obedience, but because God uses that when you do that to show the world the gospel, to show your kids the gospel, men. Or are you treating your woman the way the Jews treated this Samaritan woman as inferior? Are you using her for your own gain, for your own purposes? Do you show her more anger than you do love? Or are you dying for her, laying your life down for her? The gospel is at stake in how you treat your women, men. And here's what I want to leave everyone with. Jesus ordained both Fridays. God predestined both Fridays. He ordained Adam's bad Friday in the Garden of Eden, and he ordained his own good Friday at Calvary. Neither Friday was outside of his sovereign plan. Both of these Fridays happened in accordance with his perfect will. Both Fridays happened for the good of those who are called according to God's purpose. Both Fridays happened in accordance with the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1. The fall of mankind and the cross of Christ both serve the perfect purposes of God. And everything in between does too. So think about that. God predestined that he would become a man and die on a cross. That was the plan. Not plan B, plan A. 
God planned from eternity to enter into our sinful world and be nailed to a cross for your sins and mine. That's what Peter says in Acts 2. Peter tells his fellow Jews in Acts 2.23 that this Jesus was delivered up by the Jews, by the Pharisees, by the Romans. No, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And you, with the help of wicked men, have crucified and killed him. Did you hear that? Jesus was delivered up on the cross according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, not according to the definite plan of the Pharisees. And it was important for Jesus to remember this as he was bearing his cross and enduring his father's wrath for your sin. How would how could Jesus have endured the cross if he had not been certain that it was in accordance with the will of God, the counsel of God's will? Everything God does is purposeful. Everything going on in your life right now to the very last detail has a purpose. And in fact, everything in your life has multiple purposes, most of which you cannot discern right now. You you don't understand God's ways and what he's doing with you, how he's forming you and shaping you and maturing you. None of your none of your circumstances is accidental your income right now was ordained by God you are married to your spouse in accordance with the definite plan of God all the setbacks and struggles and trials and hardships in your life have been given to you directly straight from the hand of almighty God your difficult child or children are for your good. Your difficult marriage is for your good. Your sinful roommate is for your own good. Your difficult school assignments are for your good. Trust me, children. Your parents have been given to you for your good. And he gave you imperfect parents for your good. If Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered, as Hebrews 5, 8 says, then do you think that you can learn obedience apart from suffering? The promise that you can cling to in all of this is that God does everything in your life for a purpose. He has a reason for everything. He sent his only begotten son to the cross for a purpose. That means everything has a purpose. And that purpose... And sending his son to the cross was for the good of his son and for the good of his son's bride. So you can be certain that whatever happens to you is chock full of purpose. And know that God, in the midst of this, know that God has given you everything. The father's already given the son everything. But he also will give you everything as well. John 3:35 says that the Father has given all things into the hand of the Son. He's given everything to Jesus, but he also will give you everything if you're patient enough to wait for it. That's the promise in Romans 
He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he also not, along with Jesus, freely give us all things? He's given Jesus all things. Because he delivered him up, he will give us all things. The God who didn't spare his own son, but delivered him up for your sins, for your salvation, has promised to give everything to those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. So brothers and sisters in Christ, if God is for you, and he is for you, if God is for you, then no person, no circumstance can be against you. Everyone and everything and every situation, every circumstance is working together for your good if you belong to God. Let's pray. We thank you again, promise, Father, for the promises that you give us in your word that we can hold on to, that we can stand on. And we ask for your help in being firm in the faith that you have given us, that we will stand firm on these truths, on your grace, and on your promises. We need your help. We need your spirit to do it. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.